Hello, welcome. You found us. This is the right place to have a journey all around the universe. It's a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name is Dan. Thank you for being there, for finding us, for coming back, listening, sharing and downloading. Uh, This is the place that we take a tour around the galaxy, a quick spin around the solar system to find the most amazing science secrets that are lurking somewhere, somewhere down there in the dark, deep depths. Uh, Now, this week, you can hear all about a brilliant science magazine that's celebrating Space Week in its new edition. And what she finds is by by doing this science, by doing astronomy in a different way, she's able to pick out things that sometimes people with sight wouldn't be able to pick out because they're not attuned to those kinds of things. Also, Amy's aviation is back. This week, we're learning all about why aeroplane wings are uniquely shaped. It was so fast it could carry its passengers at supersonic speeds to New York from London in just over three hours. Supersonic means faster than the speed of sound. And as it's Space Week, we've got a spacey surprise. So stick around. It's a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's kick things off with this week's Science in the News. The Nobel Prize in Medicine has gone to Sweden's Svante Pabo for his work on evolution. He's achieved the seemingly impossible task of cracking the genetic code for one of our extinct relatives, the Neanderthals. Uh, he's also discovered an unknown relative, the Denisovans. Uh, now, finding out about our ancestors, about what's brought Homo sapiens, that's us, where we are today, is extremely important because we can look and we can study what happened with them and by looking into the past, we can help figure out more about our future. So it's a fantastically earned Nobel Prize. Also, British scientists are looking for somewhere new to send a rover that was meant to go to Mars. It never went. It was going to head to the Red Planet and bring back rocks, but NASA went for helicopters instead, and now engineers are hoping to send it to the moon to see what's happening there. Now, you know that we're hoping to send humans back to the moon really soon, so to send a robot up there first is a brilliant way to test that it's still safe for us humans to be there. And uh, last week, experts smashed a satellite into an asteroid. This was the DART mission, a test to see how well they could aim at something in space. Just in case an asteroid ever got too close to Earth, we could hope to knock it off course. And NASA hit bullseye with this. Dead perfect aim, but we need to wait a while to find out what's happened. Now, planning for the future in space, hopefully it will never come to this. An asteroid would never get so close to Earth, but we don't really want it to be the bad side of a sci-fi movie, do we? So just to plan for every eventuality, I think, is a fantastic idea. Well done, NASA. Let's check in with Professor Halex now. We're headed back to Halex's Hydration Help Desk, which is one of his series that we've been listening to over the last few weeks. We've been with Professor Halex for a while now. He's a genius, a genius about everything that happens in your body. He knows why your lungs breathe, why your heart beats blood. Uh, This time, with the Hydration Help Desk, it's all about water and what happens if we don't drink enough of it. Halex's Hydration Help Desk. Call accepted. Hello, Professor. So I know I'm meant to drink eight glasses of water each day. Does it have to be water, or can I have a drink of fruit juice or a fizzy drink? Oh, that's a good one. 
Now, if you're thirsty, your body will be grateful for any drink you give it. But not all drinks are the same when it comes to your health. Water is a great choice throughout the day because it hydrates without providing you with extra energy or harming your teeth. It's a very useful source of nutrients, especially protein, vitamin B and calcium. You should include milk regularly in your diet, but only the stuff without sugars. Sugary milk drinks like milkshakes and hot chocolate should be an occasional treat only. Nice smoothie, anyone? Fruit and vegetable juices and smoothies contain vitamins and minerals, and some have fibre too. However, they also contain some sugars and can be acidic too. So it's better to have no more than one a day, and then at mealtimes. Oh, I do like a nice cup of tea. So do I, Nanobot. Tea and coffee are fine to drink occasionally, but because they contain caffeine, they're not suitable for children in large amounts. Why not switch to the decaffeinated versions and drink with low-fat milk and no added sugar? Everyone knows that fizzy drinks and squashes contain a lot of sugar, but you might not know that even the sugar-free versions have acids that can erode the outer surface of your teeth. And then there's sport energy drinks. While they sound healthy, they contain a massive amount of sugar and other chemicals which really aren't suitable for children. They may even make you ill. Any other facts for us, Nanobot? Well, there are some very strange drinks around the world. Did you know an Indian inventor has been developing a new drink based on cow wing? Cows are sacred in India and thought to have special life-giving powers and they reckon his drink will help keep you healthy. And if that wasn't tempting enough for you, a Chinese inventor has found a way to grow green tea in panda dung. He says his tea is both nutritious and delicious. Gosh, well I suppose you could enjoy a cap of panda poo tea if you really want, but I think I'll stick to water. It's fun to have a mix of drinks, even without panda poo tea, but I think water wins. It should be your first choice every time when you're filling your glass. Alex's Hydration Health Desk with support from the Children's Health Fund. Find out more at fungislive.com slash Let's get to your questions then. If you've got something sciencey that you want answered on this show, by far the easiest way to send it to me is to get out a phone, use yours if you're lucky enough to have one, borrow your mum's or dad's, I don't mind because this is free. Record your question as a voice note and then send it to us on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com, just like this. Why does not come out when you cry? That's a brilliant question, but I can't say hello to you because it's anonymous. So when you leave your question, right, remember to drop your name in there as well. So why does snot come out when we cry? It's actually quite simple. You see, when you cry, you see, when you cry, water comes out of tear glands and tear ducts that are hidden away under your eyelids. Now, normally the water escapes, as you've seen dropping under your eyes, down your cheek. Those are tears, aren't they? But sometimes the tears kind of run around the back of your nose and they drain into there and they run off into your nose. They mix with the snot and the mucus. So your nose runs as well and you get very snotty when you cry. Thank you for the question, whoever mysteriously you are. Right, let's get another one on. Hello, my name is Sam and my question is, 
How do we know about black holes if we have never been close to one? And if we have, how did we get the footage back to Earth? Sam, thank you so much for this brilliant question with a strange answer. How do we know that black holes actually exist? The thing is with black holes, they're an idea that we're pretty dead certain about. They were first predicted by Albert Einstein. Heard of him? In his famous theory of relativity. Now, we know they exist because... Black holes have a lot of gravity. They are stars that get so big with so much gravity, they kind of swallow themselves whole. Now, gravity is a force that pulls other objects close to it. We can figure out how far something is spinning around something else. Earth is in the sun's gravity. We're pulled to the sun by that force, so we orbit the sun. Now, we can see that throughout space, all around the universe. Now, the faster something is spinning around something else, usually the more gravity is there. So remember that. We also know how big stars can actually get. So if we see something in the sky with much more gravity than normal stars have, because we can see everything that is orbiting it, but it's not shining like a star, well, it must be something else. And if it's pitch black, that something else means it must be a black hole, right? It's quite complex to get your head around, but I think you should get that. It's all to do with gravity and whether that thing with gravity is shining or not. Sam, thank you for the question. If there's something you would like answered on this show next week, get our phone or tablet, record it as a voice memo and send it over to me on the Free Fun Kids app. It's time for this week's Dangerous Dan, where we look at the most mean and cruel things in the universe. Uh, This week, we're diving into the ocean, talking about one of the biggest fish around the great tarpon. Now, the tarpon is sleek, silver and massive, which gives it its nickname, the Silver King. These fish are found all over the world, from America to Brazil, from Mexico to Australia, and they can get huge. They can grow to over eight foot long. They can weigh 20 whopping stone. Now, their ancestors can be traced back to some beasts that ruled the ocean in the age of the dinosaurs. Now, one of the unique features with the tarpon is a swim bladder, uh, which he- it's like another lung bladder, really, which helps them breathe much more than other fish, but it also helps them float or sink. They can control their buoyancy, so depending on how much air is in there, tells them if they're going to go up or down through the sea. Now, how are they dangerous? Well, they tend to eat smaller fish and other critters around the sea, but if you try to catch them, they really don't like it, and they can get pretty brutal and beastly. They thrash, they swim, they bite too, and because they're so big and heavy... They've been known to latch onto a fisher's arm and drag them deep down into the ocean to never return. And that is why the tarpon, the Silver King, goes straight onto our Dangerous Dan list. You're listening to the Science Weekly. This week, we're chatting to the host of another one of the brilliant science podcasts that we help make here at Fun Kids. He is the editor of the Week Junior's Science and Nature magazine, host of the Mysteries of Science podcast, Dan Green. Welcome. 
I am another Dan on a science yes, podcast. It's indeed. lovely to have you here. Yeah, hi Dan. Lovely to chat to you. It's always a really great day when I get to speak to another Dan about science. <laughs> I don't want to know how many of us there are because I feel it might uh, rock me a bit. You know? Yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. <laughs> well, listen. Um, you've got a special issue of the magazine, the Week Junior Science and Nature Mag, uh, for Space Week. It's it's been edited by an absolute science and space legend, Dr. Maggie Adderin Pocock. Um, what has she done? What's going on in the mag this time? Well, yeah, we've, like you say, we've got a really special edition this month uh, for October. It's celebrating World Space Week. Now, have you heard of World Space Week before? Uh, yes. Yes. Excellent. Good. I'm glad you have. You know, you're on, uh, you know, <laughs> on the page with me. Um, it's this celebration of everything to do with space, and it goes on all around the world between the 4th and the 10th of October. So we thought we've got to do something special for this this year. And, yeah, we, we thought uh, let's pull in our friends, ask all our friends to help us get something really special together. So we have got uh, Dr. Maggie in pocock as the guest editor, and we even spoke to uh, astronaut Tim Peake as well in the magazine. Oh, and we love Tim Peake on the show. Yes, so absolutely. So Maggie knows an awful lot about what's happening and what's out there in space. And she's always keeping up with the new thing. What has she brought to the magazine to mark a fantastic event like Space Week? Well, yeah, we work really closely with Maggie and Maggie's people to plan out this content. And and like we say in the magazine, she really set her phases to stun on this one. So um, we got a whole bunch. We wanted to sort of open it up to the whole range of things that are going on in space. So that's that's rockets going out into space. We looked at the new NASA Artemis missions, which will send astronauts and the, the first women and the first people of colour to go to the moon, uh, hopefully later this year. Well, hopefully. Um, I mean, it's, it's been delayed yes. about three times, so hopefully. <laughs> hurricane this time has stopped it I going, know, hasn't it? Um, but we also, you know, it's not just about human spaceflight. Uh, we looked about studying the stars. Um, we, One of our heroes of science is Wanda Diaz Merced, sometimes called the blind astronomer. It's a really remarkable woman who uses sound to observe the stars. Tell us more, if you can, about how they do that. Surely these stars are so far away that we can't get much sound from them. How is she managing that? Do you know? Well, she's not actually listening to them. They're taking the signals that are coming from stars and then she's converting those signals into audio signals that she can listen to. And what she finds is by by doing this science, by doing astronomy in a different way, she's able to pick out things that sometimes people with sight wouldn't be able to pick out because they're not attuned to those kinds of things so you know it's amazing it's amazing way that shows that science is really for everybody and um you know uh we can be we can do science in different ways fantastic and it's not just the magazine as i said you're the host of the mysteries of science podcast uh what's coming up in the show soon that's right. We've got a new uh, episode, which is out today, as it happens. And we're asking, are computers smarter than you? 
or is well i know my computer is smarter than me and we've talked to some amazing experts to help us understand uh, what artificial intelligence is and the mysteries around how machines can learn. We ask whether they'll ever get uh, smarter than us. Will they take over the world? And also, we've um, got a very clever producer has created robot versions of us. And we ask you to guess, see whether you can tell the difference between us and our robot uses. That's amazing. The thing with asking whether computers and ai are more are more intelligent than us right now i i think what we need to remember is stuff happens that is new so at, at the moment there's a lot in uh ai being able to replicate speech online y- you can almost get a phone call from president joe biden and it's made by a computer <laughs> but you would never realize it and that's happened in the last year and now we're all quite used to it and it's thinking like 10 years down the line and imagining hang on these computers will do stuff that we don't even imagine right now how much have you learned about whether they will be more intelligent than us some years in the future well i guess it's that kind of thing like what do we mean by intelligence, right? So, yeah, it can be quite a scary thought to think that, uh, you know, uh, computers can do things sometimes even better than humans can do things. But also, I think the one thing that we, we reach the conclusion of in the, uh, in you know, when we're asking experts is there's a lot, lot of things that computers just can't do and that humans are really good at doing <laughs> um and and some of that is just around emotional intelligence and understanding people amazing so that's two brilliant things that you need to you need to get involved with uh there's the week juniors science and nature magazine it's celebrating space week and also will computers ever be smarter than us in the mysteries of science podcast dan green thank you for joining us thank you very much dan lovely to speak to you Let's catch up with Amy now. Amy's Aviation. This is a series that we've been listening to for the last few weeks. Uh, Amy loves planes. She is all for aviation. Finding out how different types of planes made of different materials get fast enough to get into the sky and then stay there. This week, it's all about wings. We find out what a delta wing is and how different shaped wings can change how planes fly. experimenting on some more paper planes. Did you know that most paper planes have something in common with the space shuttle? Two, one, zero, all I know what you're thinking. Paper planes don't go into space. And you're right. But that isn't what they have in common. It's all to do with the shape of the wings. Many paper planes have, like, triangle-shaped wings, don't they? This is called a delta wing. So what, you might think? Don't all planes have wings that are the same shape? Well, no. Think about it. If you imagine the planes you get at a busy airport, the sort of planes you might go on holiday on, they don't have triangle-shaped wings, do they? Their wings stick out more sort of squarely on each side, don't they? Ready for takeoff. Your paper plane with its delta wings might fly quite well, but on real aircraft, delta wings aren't very good at low speeds. They're not very stable. But there's something Delta Wings are brilliant at, and that's flying super fast. The 
Those large wings give the plane huge amounts of lift at high speeds and the ability to glide for thousands of miles. That's why the Space Shuttle had wings like this and why it's a common shape on fighter jets too. There was even a famous passenger plane which had Delta wings. You might have seen pictures of it. It was called Concorde and was the fastest passenger aircraft ever built. with slim delta wings built smoothly around the long fuselage. It was so fast it could carry its passengers at supersonic speeds to New York from London in just over three hours. Supersonic means faster than the speed of sound. That's over 760 miles an hour. Although Concorde could cruise at over a thousand miles per hour. Great if you're in a hurry, but there's a couple of big problems with all these Delta Wing planes. The first problem is that because they can be so unstable in the air, they can be really difficult to pilot. The smallest mistake could mean the plane would go into a spin, and that could mean a big crash. Luckily, most modern planes are fly-by-wire, which means that computers help take care of the difficult adjustments to keep the plane in the air. The second problem is that as they're made for speed, they need very long runways and have to go incredibly fast to take off and land. This can make them more dangerous. In 2000, a Concorde crashed when a tyre burst on takeoff. The high speeds may have contributed to this terrible disaster. Concorde were all retired in 2003. For lots of reasons, it just wasn't practical to use them for carrying passengers anymore. But they're a part of history we won't forget. Another incredible type of wing is the sort you get on a B-2, the Stealth Bomber. Now this military aircraft has to be the weirdest looking plane you've ever seen. It's enormous and over 170 feet wide, totally black all over and shaped like a big W, or like two Ws. A giant flying zigzag basically. It's seriously weird. <laughs> And it's this shape because the whole plane is one big wing. There's no separate fuselage for the pilot and no tail fins. And why was it built this way? To make it virtually invisible. OK, you're thinking, well, if it's an enormous big black W the size of half a football pitch, that doesn't sound very invisible to me. You'd be right, in a way. But it's on radar that it can barely be seen. When it's flying, if the enemy is scanning the sky with radar, its shape means that the waves bounce straight off, making it seem no bigger than a sparrow. So, next time you're making a paper plane, why not experiment with some different shaped wings? Time for me to fly! Chucks away! Now, it is Space Week this week. We heard that earlier on with Dan Green chatting all about the Science and Nature magazine's Space Week special. Uh, so I thought it was a pretty good idea to look back on some of the genius space experts that we've had on the show. 
So we're going to listen to one of the best right now. Tim Peake is an astronaut who has spent time on the International Space Station. A very famous dude uh, from here in the UK. He spent ages up there. He's come back down. He wants to go back up to the moon. He's written loads of books about his time orbiting the Earth. One of them was called Ask an Astronaut. Now, we recorded this chat a few years ago, but because it's Space Week, let's have another listen to Tim Peake answering some of your space questions. Tim, thank you so much for, for being there. How are you? Hello, Dan. I'm great, thanks. Great to be on Fun Kids. Now, what do you... I, I don't want to start this on a downer, Tim, but I'm just wondering, what do you miss most about being in space? Uh, I think the two main things that um, I miss, I think most astronauts miss, is the view of Earth, because there's nowhere else like it, uh, that you can get this incredible view of our planet, and and also the feeling of weightlessness, which is really, really cool. It's very unique. It's lots of fun. It just makes everything you do slightly different. So I think those two things are brilliant, and, and I miss them a lot. Talking about the view, Tim, I've heard some astronauts say that it it makes you think about your life a lot differently and about your place in the world. What did you find when you were up there looking down on this tiny marble of a planet that you were hovering miles above? It does. You can't help about thinking about things differently. I mean, every day on Earth, we go about our daily lives and we see nature around us, greenery, you know, uh, urban areas. We look up, we see a blue sky or a cloudy sky. We don't actually appreciate that we are on a rocky planet orbiting around a sun. You know, that's not the first thing you think of when you step outside your door. Uh, But from space, it is all you see. It's like, oh my goodness, mate, that's just a black abyss of the universe. And there's that rocky planet. Um, and, you know, you just see this completely different perspective. Uh, and so that's the most amazing thing is it just gives you that fresh appreciation of where we are in the solar system. One of the things I know I love, and I know a lot of listeners love, is having a bit of free time in the day. I'm wondering about you being up on the International Space Station. How much time did you just have to just chill and do what you want? Or were you pretty busy right the way through? Constant experiments, constant spacewalks. How busy were you, Tim? It is it is busy. We're there to work hard. Um, you have to kind of snatch those moments when you can. So if you've been scheduled, you know, 20 minutes to do something, you manage to do it in 15 minutes, you just bought yourself a quick five minutes to go to the cupola, you know, take some photographs, have a look of Earth. Uh, but there's constantly things to do. At the weekends, we get a bit more time to ourselves. We do some education programs. We clean the space station. We can call friends and family. But Monday through Friday, it's pretty much flat out. How long did it take you to get used to the fact that you were sleeping inside a chunk of metal that was hovering through space? I think, you know, you never really get used to it. Um, I, I, I started getting good night's sleep after about two weeks. It takes your body about two weeks to be able to fall asleep in weightlessness because it's really unusual when you don't put your head on a pillow or lie down. It's a really weird uh, way to sleep. And so your body doesn't like it. But once you get used to it, you have a great night's sleep and you wake up after just six hours. That's plenty of rest. It's such good quality. But you never really get used to the fact that you're floating in a space station. How do you get comfy if you're not lying down, if you've got nothing to put your head on? What, you just float? Like, you just don't need it. You just float. 
I mean, in fact, I kind of put my hands, my arms inside the sleeping bag and zip them up so that they were kind of across my chest. Because if you don't secure your arms in some way, they'll just float around and maybe knock you in the head and wake yourself up in the middle of the night. So it it feels more secure just by strapping yourself into a sleeping bag. Now, the last time we spoke and you came on the show, you told me that there were plans to make the moon a service station en route to Mars. And... I don't think I've, there's no one I've met that I haven't mentioned that to. Uh, how are we getting on with that, with that quest, Tim? We're doing a pretty good job. In fact, this year, later this year, we hope to launch SLS, which is the huge rocket. This is larger than the Saturn V that took the Apollo crews to the moon. So it's going to have its maiden voyage this year. Um, and then the next mission, the second mission, will be carrying crew, four crew members uh, around the moon uh, and then bring them back. And then the third mission, which is scheduled for 2024, maybe 2025, uh, is going to have the surface landing. So two astronauts going down to the surface once again, which is going to be fantastic. So if we get to go back to the moon, is your hand first up? You're the one that wants to be there. Is that doable? Uh, my hand is certainly firmly up up there. I know there's fierce competition from my other European classmates, but my hand is firmly up there. We'll see what happens. Now, uh, Tim, I've got some questions from listeners, if that's okay. Stuff that they'd like to ask an astronaut. Can I fire some at you? Of course. Let's fire away. Uh, this is from Tia, who is nine. Uh, who wants to know how much do you have to actually do to get back down to earth when you sit in that module at the end is it just a case of aiming and going forward how how much say do you have over where you land well, do you know what? Coming back to Earth, we have a lot more say and we have a lot more to do. It's launching into space that we don't have a huge amount to do. I mean, literally, the rocket goes off. And if everything goes well, we don't touch anything until the engines cut out and we're hopefully safely in space. But coming back down, there's a lot to do. We have to break. We have to slow down. And that burn, that engine burn has to be really spot on accurate. So starting the engine, stopping the engine, making sure that we break uh, enough to come into Earth's atmosphere. Not too much, we'll come in too steep, not too little, or else we'll go back out into space again. And then the spacecraft has to separate into three parts. Then the parachutes have to open successfully. Seats have to jockey their position around. There's a lot going on with re-entry. It's a, it's a brilliant roller coaster ride, but we've got a lot to do. Uh, this one is from Louise, who is eight years old. Thank you, Louise. Why do astronauts get weaker when they're up in space? Well, the reason we get weaker is because our body is doing a brilliant, brilliant job of trying to adapt to a new environment. It says, hey, I'm just not working hard. I don't need these bones. I don't need these muscles because of weightlessness. And so our body tries to adapt. And that's why we get weaker. Um, so we have to try and stop that from happening because we're going to come back to a gravity environment. Uh, but if we left our body and did nothing at all, it would turn itself into the perfect human form for weightlessness. It's pretty incredible. And then Neve follows up on that. She's also eight. She says, when you get back down on Earth again, how long does it take you to adjust so you can walk normally, so you can use your muscles again in stronger gravity? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and, you know, it's a, it varies because... It takes just a couple of days before we feel confident walking again. We've got our balance okay. You know, we feel all right. Um, but then you go to pick things up and you realize that your core strength is just not quite there because we, it's very hard to exercise your stomach muscles and your lower back muscles. That takes probably about a month to really fully build those back up. And our bones actually take at least six months to recover, if not a year. So it's a gradual process. Uh, Luke, who is nine, says loads of people want to be an astronaut, 
not many get the chance. What makes the lucky few stand out? I think the things that the space agencies are really looking for are people who are able to be team players that can communicate well, uh, that can work in international teams, that don't mind traveling. All these little things that go to make up a national in terms, as well as all those skills that they've tested, like concentration and spatial awareness and memory retention, etc. But it comes down a lot of it to your personality and character and how you come across in interviews in the final stages um, because any one of you know a dozen people could do the job but they need to just pick three or four and so it's the small things uh, about your personality and character which is why I think it's so important when you're younger to get out get involved whether it's scouts whether it's cadets guides you know whatever it is that you want to do Duke of Edinburgh award schemes things that kind of build those interpersonal skills are so important for life uh, l- last question from a listener this is from Marley who's 10 and I love this it's it's all about coming back to earth uh, Marley says, when when you go scuba diving, if you come up too quickly, you get a little bit ill. You get the bends. Does anything happen like that when you come back from space if it all happens too quickly? Uh, that's a brilliant, brilliant question. Um, you know what? It doesn't happen when we come back from space because if everything goes well, the, our pressure doesn't change. The pressure on the space station is one atmosphere, same as on Earth. Inside the capsule, it's one atmosphere. So no pressure change. The place where we have to be really careful is coming inside from a spacewalk because when we do a spacewalk, we go to a really low pressure inside our suits so that we can bend our arms or we can work outside in the vacuum of space. And that's very much like diving so when you come back in from that really low pressure environment where nitrogen can start to even you know start to form bubbles in our blood we have to be really really careful when we do spacewalks going into them and coming back out of them Uh, lastly and this is just me because there's a lot of talk about billionaires going into space at the moment jeff bezos elon musk sir richard branson Uh, as someone that's been there yourself that's part of the European Space Agency, hopefully going back to the moon at some point. How do you feel about about these people spending loads of their own money to get up to space? Well, I think it's, it's brilliant what's happening because, you know, these commercial companies are going to be critical to our, our exploration of the moon to Mars and beyond. Uh, and it's a case of using other people's resources. So SpaceX, for example, are not only are they flying crew to the space station right now and providing cargo, they're going to be providing a, a lander system, a lunar lander system, and their, their large rocket's going to be carrying elements of the exploration program, as might Blue Origin. So these companies you know participating in this program are going to make deep space exploration possible so i think what they're doing is is fantastic and also it is giving more you know opportunity for more people to get into space and at the moment whilst that's people who've got lots of money you know in the early days of flying it was only people who had lots of money that could afford to fly across the atlantic whereas now you know there's many many people who could afford a ticket to a, for a holiday in florida for example so who knows in the future many many more people might be able to afford a ticket to space. Amazing. Well, Tim, thanks for joining us. The brand new book is Swarm Rising um, and it's fantastic. Tim, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks very much. Great talking to you. And that is it for this week's episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. If there is something sciencey that you have to ask, if you want it answered desperately, easiest way, record it as a voice note, send it to me on the free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com and you can be a star of the show. If you've enjoyed any of the series that we've heard today, we've heard Amy's Aviation and Professor Hallux. We've got loads more of them on the free Fun Kids app, Google, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, however you listen, they will be there. 
and Fun Kids. We are a children's radio station from the UK. Listen all around the country on your DAB digital radio on that free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com. Shh.